The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. I love Easter. How about you? Amen? Easter is the best weekend of the year at least for a pastor, and I hope for, for all Christians. Why? Because this is the day that we proclaim, and we've done it already today, without a shadow of a doubt, that death does not get the final word. That Jesus has done it. That the cross worked, right? Like some, some people might have been holding their breath in heaven, thinking to themselves, is this actually going to work? Is Jesus actually going to come alive again? And the empty tomb says it all, that it did. And this means for us that there will be no pain that will not be healed. There will be no wrong that will be held against us. There will be no brokenness that will not be restored. I love how one uh, author, Christian author put it. He said it puts it so well for us sitting in the pews today. He said, eternal life which we often think of happens when we die and we go to heaven. Eternal life, he says, does not begin after death. But at the point where God touches the individual with grace. And so we can sit here in the pews and not just think of, oh, the resurrection helps us when we die. No, the resurrection is for us right now. But. As much as I love Easter, I also struggle with Easter. I struggle with it because I'm very mindful of the places where the resurrection hasn't actually hit home for me yet. I'm mindful of the times that I actually struggle to believe, that I struggle to live in its shadow, where I care too much about what people think about me, not enough about what God thinks about me. I don't, I don't know about you. Am I, am I the only one who struggles with that? And so what do we do? I think I'm going to call this the gap. The gap in our faith that causes us to proclaim Easter on Sunday and struggle with Easter on Tuesday. And let me also be clear, this gap is here for very real, very honest reasons. Many of us experience gaps in our belief that grow out of life experiences of pain and suffering, of loss and grief that continue, that just stretch this gap of belief in our lives apart, where it makes Easter Sunday feel like a distant past, like it doesn't actually work like that. This year has been difficult for all of us, and as a congregation, we've walked through death, cancer, dementia, job loss, loneliness, doubt, separation, depression, addictions, all of these things that cause this gap in our belief to widen. The good news for us is that this is Mary's story too. Mary Magdalene enters the scene in this story with a major gap in her belief, right? She just lost the one who she loved, the, the person who cared about her, probably the only person who cared about her. Remember, Mary was, was a demon-possessed person who Jesus healed. And, and she was labeled as a crazy person, an outcast, 
And then everything changed when she met Jesus. And then he died, and she lost him. And now she goes to the tomb, and his body is gone. The last thing that she, connection that she had to Jesus was taken from her. And she does what all of us would do, is she just cries. She cries. Now, if you're sitting here looking at your life, and you're struggling to believe, you know that gap in your life exists between the resurrection life that Jesus offers us to take hold of right now and the reality on Tuesday morning. You're not alone. Mary's right there with you. And this is why in, uh, Easter is an invitation to all of us, whether we are young or old, mature or young Christians, all of us are invited this morning into a deeper assurance and joy of this reality that yes, the resurrection is for us right now. I think my whole sermon can be summarized in these two questions that I was mulling over a lot this week. What would happen if we began to recognize these gaps in our lives? Name them. Be honest about them. And what would happen? What would it take for us to shrink them? For our lives to be more like resurrection lives. In how sure we are that it's for us here. Three things I think we can do that the text suggests. Three things to shrink the gaps. First is we need to use our imagination. We need to use our brain. And we need to use our heart. Use our imagination, our brain, and our heart. So first, let's look at imagination. So shrinking the gap in belief first takes place in our imagination. What does the resurrection mean for us? Uh, first thing I'd like to point out is that imagine with me. Death does not have the final word. And I know we say that a lot, but I think that the, this is not something that we can actually say enough. See, it's no secret that when we look at the history of the Christian church— that this imagination caught hold of their minds, the, the minds of the first century Christians, more than we could ever imagine. Many of the first century Christians, thousands of them, became a spectacle in the Colosseum. Right? They were ripped apart by wild animals, but they went there with joy and peace. And we look at them and we think, how? It's resurrection. Look at the disciples of Jesus, too, the ones who were uh, tasked to be the evangelists, the first evangelists who took the gospel to the Roman world. They all had their lives ended. All except one had their lives ended early by persecution. Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew was put to death. James was stoned. We see Stephen in Acts stoned to death. All of these people faced this death, not thinking that it was the end for them, but that it was the beginning of their new life in Christ. The only one of the twelve who wasn't martyred was John, the apostle who wrote this gospel, who died alone on an island, not unlike Alcatraz. What caused them to face this and hold on to their faith? It was that their imagination was filled with resurrection. It's what they did. They, put, they set their minds on Christ. When Mary first finds the tomb, 
Her first instinct is to get Peter and John and to come have a look, and she doesn't dare go in. She's just so overwhelmed. She goes, gets Peter, goes, gets John, and they, Peter comes, he bends over, he peers inside, and he sees the strips of linen. It's the first thing that, that he notices. And it's an interesting note, and we think, oh, that's, that's kind of cute, but it's, it's more intentional than that by John, because if you think of a few chapters before, John puts a, a very important miracle that, that basically is the linchpin that launches Jesus towards the cross, and that's, that's raising Lazarus from the dead. That's what tips off the religious leaders who say, we've got to kill this guy. And, so, and Jesus knows this. He knows that what he's doing is going to get him killed. But John, the gospel writer, puts into that, that um, New Life account, where, where Lazarus is raised from the dead, he, he writes in there that Lazarus walked out of the tomb wearing grave clothes. Commentators of this passage of the resurrection say that this is an important note, that John is causing us to think back to Lazarus and, and saying, and, and, and John is, is telling us to pay attention to this because Lazarus walked out of the tomb wearing the clothes because he's going to die again. He's going to face death. But Jesus has no use for those anymore. If the grave had a trash bin, they, they wouldn't have been folded up. They'd been thrown in there because death is done. Death is done. The grave clothes are of no use anymore. Imagine this. Put this front and center on our minds. That Jesus' resurrection is for us too, which means that we do not have to face the death that leads to the end of us, but leads to the beginning of a new life. Second, let's imagine all the things that we have done that we regret, all of them will never be held against us. Just sit in that for a moment. Have you ever had it when you buy something in the store? You know, you, you go through the checkout line, put it in the shopping bag, you walk out of the store, and the alarm goes off, right? We've all been there. And it, when it happens to me, there's just a moment of panic in me where things, oh, did I do something wrong? Did I accidentally steal something? Did I actually pay for this? And the store clerk, you know, walks up to you, and what do you do? You reach into your bag, and you pull out the receipt, and you show it to them. Here it is, right? Don't hold this alarm against me. I've paid for this. It's paid in full. Yeah, we've all done things in our lives that fill us with regret. The alarm goes off on us all the time, doesn't it? The alarm of our own consciences. The beep, 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 beep. When we lie, when we cheat, when we cheat, when we steal things, when we, when we do things that we know that we regret, when we treat people that we love in ways that we don't want to. We know we all do things that we regret. But we can point to something. When that alarm goes off, right? We, we, we did it on, on Maundy Thursday where we remembered the Passover, right? And how the blood of the doorframe saved the Israelites when the angel of death passed over, that we have the blood of Christ that, that covers us and our sin. The empty grave is the receipt that it worked, that the cross worked, that nothing that we have done, that we regret, that, 
sin, the brokenness, will ever be held against us. Imagine that. Friends, let's look at now imagining the best part of the resurrection. Some of you may know that uh, John's gospel is filled with signs. Signs that John intentionally places in the gospel that point to the fact that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. And John puts uh, these signs all over. You know, uh, one is water into wine, feeding of the 5,000, healing a blind man. And these are all revealing to us that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. You may also remember that in the Bible, the number seven is of very importance. Who can remember the first seven in the Bible? It's the creation, right? In seven days, God created the heavens and the earth. Do you know what the seventh sign is in John's gospel? The cross. The cross. Do you know what the eighth sign is? The first new sign, the new creation? It's the resurrection. Resurrection. Everything in John's gospel is launching us towards this final sign that shows us that the new world, the new creation has come in Christ. And this will be for us when Jesus comes again. What does it look like to imagine this, to put this front and center on our minds, to live in the new creation mindset? Well, think about um, a woman who some of us may have heard of before. Her name is Joni Erickson Tata. She is a Christian author who writes powerfully about the power of grace and of, the, of how Christ works in our brokenness because she, at a young age, she was in a diving accident. When she was 16, ended up in a wheelchair and had to live the rest of her life, I think she's in her 60s now, eating and drinking through a straw. She writes about the gap that this caused in her faith and about how imagining her new life in Christ has begun to shrink the gap over the years. And she writes powerfully about a worship service she was at. I want to share with you. She says, At the close of the message, the speaker asked everyone to do something unusual. He asked us to push our our chairs away from the tables and to get on our knees in worship. Well, I sat there in my wheelchair as I watched everyone else in the room, 600 of them, get down on their knees. With everyone kneeling in that banquet hall, I stood out. I was sticking up way up. And looking around, I couldn't stop the tears. Oh, and I wasn't crying out of pity. No. My eyes were wet because it was so beautiful to see everyone kneeling in prayer. And it made me think of the day when I too will be able to get up out of this wheelchair on resurrected legs. Friends, what is it for you? Where do you dream of resurrection in your life? Everything that we face today that makes us cringe and creak when we know the signs of age and we start to fall apart, it will not always be so. It will not always be so because the eighth sign, the new creation, 
has come in Christ. Use our imaginations. Shrink the gap in our belief. Secondly, let's use our brain. I like to use my brain. I hope you do too. Um, is there any evidence for the resurrection? I mean, it's great to imagine it, but is it actually true? And how can we know if it's true? Well, we have to turn on our brains for a minute. And I cannot go into enough depth here, but I can point out two things. There's many books written about this. One book that I consulted this week, a 600-page book written by New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, all on the resurrection of the Son of God. But he points out two things that are very important that can help us know that the, the resurrection is true. First, the women. See, in those days, women were seen way differently than today. They weren't respected in nearly the same way that they are today, uh, which makes Jesus so countercultural, actually. Uh, and, and they were not trusted. So much so that, that if uh, a woman's testimony was not trusted in the court of law, it had to be a male. And yet in this gospel, think about it, all four gospels place the women as the first people to witness the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This doesn't strike us, but in that culture, you would never, ever, 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 ever make up a story, ever, in which women were the first witnesses of anything new. World-renowned historian, as I mentioned, N.T. Wright, puts it like this. He says, This is perhaps the most astonishing thing about the resurrection narratives. Granted, the beliefs about the t in the time of the unreliability of women in the court or almost anywhere else, this is one of the things which absolutely guarantees that the early Christians did not invent these stories. They would never, ever, ever invent the idea that it was a woman, a woman with a, a background of emotional instability who had been entrusted with the earth-shattering message that Jesus was alive again. It's Mary, not Peter. It's Mary, not James, the brother of Jesus. It's Mary who becomes the apostle to the apostles, the primary Christian witness, the first Christian evangelist. It's Mary. Think about that. Secondly, think about this. What if Jesus' body was stolen? I mean, who's to say he rose from the grave? What if people stole him? Or what if he didn't actually die up on the cross? He just fell asleep. Eric Metaxas writes about this in his book on miracles, where he makes it abundantly clear that Roman soldiers were killing experts. I mean, they killed for a living, and they killed well. Unfortunately, these soldiers probably had crucified thousands in their career before reaching the cross of Jesus Christ. Given that a centurion was present at the cross, it means that the Romans sent in the big guns for Jesus, probably because the religious leaders were in such an uproar over him. And so these people knew what a dead person on the cross looked like. No historian doubts whether Jesus died on the cross. None. It would be unfathomable for Roman soldiers to let somebody live after a crucifixion. But what about his body? Was it stolen? You know, if he died, was put in the grave, did people steal it? Well, we also know that there was a guard of Roman soldiers sent to the tomb. 
around the clock, a garrison that the Jewish leaders asked for. These soldiers, if they took a bribe, if they failed at their post, if they fell asleep, if they let people by to steal the body, which was a criminal offense in those days, they would face the death sentence too. Metaxas sums this up. He says this. He said, if a policeman in our world takes a bribe, there would be a trial. He might lose his job, perhaps go to prison, but he would not be put to death. But Roman soldiers knew death was nearly certain if they failed their duties. Even the most beef-witted of them knew that money could not be enjoyed by the dead. Think about this when your hearts are troubled. I was talking with Tracy last night after I was done preparing for this morning, and I came up and I said, it's true. It's true. It, the resurrection cannot find a lowest level in our hearts. It's always going to, if we invite Jesus to, it will deepen our assurance every time we think deeply about it. Lastly, though, let's use our hearts. Because the resurrection is not just hope for the future, it's hope to heal our scars right here, too. So let's rejoin Mary again, who faced, as I said, the biggest gap in her story when she lost Jesus. She lost him, but she actually didn't. Because Jesus comes to her, calls out to her, promises her that she will never be alone. In fact, he tells her that he's going to ascend to the Father so that he can send his Spirit to be with her around the clock. Right? That's why he says, don't hold on to me, because, because he's got something better in store for her. You know, through faith, we are connected to Christ right here, right now. Because of the resurrection, he is able to do far more than we could ever imagine. One commentator sums up Mary's question. She says, Mary asks two questions of Jesus. Or Jesus asks two questions of Mary, rather. Why are you crying? And who are you looking for? Jesus is widening her horizons. Because as deep as her devotion to him was, her estimate of him was too small. Where, not is, where is Jesus too small in your life? And where is he coming to you and asking you to open yourself up to him in new ways? Deeper dependence deeper assurance. Christ's candle's lit because he's here with us. He's with us in his spirit. And he comes to us. And he calls us each by name. For Mary, Jesus meets her in the place of her deepest pain, her fear of being alone. What about you? Now, will we listen to Jesus? Will we trust him? Will we fall on our knees before him? 
the gaps in our faith will always exist on this side of eternity. But when we imagine the resurrection life, when we think about the resurrection truth, when we receive the resurrection Lord, these gaps will begin to shrink. And we too will join Mary as she runs to the other apostles and proclaims to them, I have seen the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we prepare to come to the table that you've set for us, prepare our hearts. As we begin to imagine and think and receive the words that speak to our hearts, this is my body which is for you. This is my blood shed for you. Would your Holy Spirit make these words resonate in new places, in deeper ways, that we may take hold of the resurrection life on Tuesday morning. Shrink these gaps by your Holy Spirit at work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.